The following episode deals with explicit descriptions of violence that can be disturbing or distressing to some listeners. These include descriptions of murder and torture, possible mentions of death, suicide, and rape, and sound effects that recall violence and gunfire. If you want to skip these parts of the podcast, timestamps with specific trigger warnings can be found on our website or on the description section. Please be advised. Most of the people who can attest to this story, to what happened, are slowly dying. These are the words of J.C. Mijares. It is February 2020 and he, like me and countless others, are engaging in the fight to make sure that the living history of martial law isn't forgotten. That even as we acknowledge the faults of the Aquino administration and the presidents that came after, that we never forget the victims of the Marcoses, the plunder, the rape, the murder, the torture that happened with their blessing. But the difference is that it is personal for JC. He bears the legacy of a disappearance and death so horrific that much of it has sprawled into urban legend. For him, this fight is about making sure the sacrifices of his grandfather and uncle are remembered. Welcome to Yugto, a podcast where we can get sad and mad over Filipino history. We continue our tales about the countless deaths and disappearances of martial law. We continue remembering the names of those that Bongbong and Aimee Marcos and their like are too cowardly to ever say out loud. Today, we get mad about the ultimate fate of J.C. Mejares' grandfather and uncle, Primitivo Mejares, better known as the author of the notorious tome The Conjugal Dictatorship of Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos, and his son, Boyet Mejares. It is 1975 and Primitivo Tibo Mijares has control of media top to bottom within the archipelago. Media is a lot less complicated then. No social media or internet, so governments can't track people through big data. But citizens don't have as much access to varying perspectives, nor the ability to record their own personal histories or experiences. Allah not being able to record abuses that they're suffering from the police and so on and so forth. It is easy at this time to suppress facts and spin stories as long as you have money or power. And Tibo has both. Tibo is a survivor. He was only 12 when his mother was violently killed by Japanese soldiers during World War II. He watched her die and was barely able to get away himself as they burned his home. Instead of succumbing to fear as any other 12-year-old boy would, Thibault helps the guerrilla resistance after, ferrying arms and orders under the guise of bringing vinegar jars back and forth. Thibault is a journalist. He is twice president of the National Press Club. As chairman of the Media Advisory Council, an office newly created by Marcos, he helps come up with the guidelines and edicts that force all media channels in the Philippines to follow whatever Marcos says or else be judged as having committed a criminal offense. Under Mejares' leadership, anyone who wants to publish or televise anything in the Philippines has to sign an agreement promising wholehearted support. Many other competing media bigwigs at the time are leashed or arrested because of these guidelines. 
Leashes and arrests make it easy for the Marquises to requisition media channels from personalities that have been kicked out of the picture. As an example, since they arrest Eugenio Lopez, they are able to force his channel, ABS-CBN, to convey their national messages of why martial law is needed and all the good the Marcus family is doing, without the Marcus camp having to spend a penny themselves. Just as a note, ABS-CBN, of course, is the same channel that was taken off-air by Duterte's regime, also for violating one law or another. Tibo is a propagandist. Not by way of making badly edited Facebook memes or writing comments on news sites. No, he is a propagandist by profession. In fact, nicknamed the media czar for all his efforts. He takes credit for planting in the head of Eugenio Lopez that Marcos was the unbeatable candidate in 1965. As studies show, the coverage of an election influences the election itself, and Thibault ponders, if he hadn't planted that idea in Eugenio's head, would Marcos have won? Would the dictatorship have started? Once Marcos begins to desire becoming president for the rest of his life, Thibault is the one that spins the stories that make this possible. People won't like martial law because it curtails people's freedom? Thibault says why not tell people that communists are bad and getting stronger, so we need martial law, we need less freedom, to protect people. Thibault says I can write those stories and media releases. As martial law speeds along and after his role in helping leash the Philippine media, Thibault even starts working with Marcos on an idea to establish an international intelligence network that would put point persons in different countries that would allow them to control the international news coverage of the Philippines so that other countries would leave them alone. Thibault Mejares is an insider. He and Marcos are actual friends. Marcos, after all, became possible because of the workings of people like Thibault. Thibault has had intimate conversations with Marcos. He has had inside jokes with Imelda. He knows full well the truth behind their lies. That when they talk about the flourishing economy, it's to cover up that the majority of the money is being hoarded by Marcos cronies or being spent by Imelda on quote-unquote beautification projects that leave the economy for the ordinary man in shambles. He knows when they talk about communist attacks, these are actually general statements to cover up conflicts that Marcos forces either started themselves or caused just to create chaos so they have an excuse to put down an enemy or grab some land. He knows that when they talk about one or two casualties, they're usually hiding tons more deaths or grosser circumstances behind the fact. And how do we know all of this about Debo Meharis? Because he himself confesses that this is who he is and what he does, and who he did it for, and how, in front of the U.S. Congress. After some scandals involving the media congress that he was head of, the boy is removed from his position. He leaves the country, goes to the United States, and offers to testify to the U.S. Congress about all the atrocities he's witnessed and allowed as one of Marcus's right-hand men. With different nations and allies already frowning on the Marcus's militarism, this offer from an inside man seems too good to pass up. 
before Thibaut testifies in front of the Senate, Marcus sends him a desperate bribe. A bribe that is telling just in action. Because after all, why try to stop Thibaut if there is really nothing to hide? The money is nothing to scoff at. 100,000. Not just pesos, but dollars. The proof of it is in print. Buy any copy of the conjugal dictatorship today and you'll see a photo of the bribe right in there. In the book, Mejares details even the phone call made between him, Secretary de Vega, and Marcos himself, where he is told, at first scoldingly, like a friend, hey, just don't do this. Later on in the phone call, it becomes sterner and more threatening. Think really well about what you're about to do. Thibault Mejares says on the phone that he's legally bound now to speak in front of the U.S. Congress. But the truth actually is much simpler. It isn't as the Marcoses try to spin it back in the Philippines that he's bitter at being removed from his position. It's just that he has realized that it's the correct thing to do. The comforts his lofty friends have afforded him can no longer outweigh the guilt and exhaustion he feels having to hide things and lie for Ferdinand, Imelda, and all their friends. Undeniably, he puts his money where his mouth is. He knows how dangerous the Marcuses can be. He knows they've ordered assassinations over less. But here he is across the ocean, away from his family and his country, crumpling up a bribe and taking a stand. In front of the U.S. government, Mejares talks about everything from the media perspective. How he has helped control the narrative, how he helped create the excuses that would start martial law, excuses that continue to be echoed even today by pro-Marcos Facebook keyboard warriors, yes, in the year of our Lord 2021. Mejares discusses how his office was created to write stories and ensure that other media channels weren't letting negative spins come out. He talks about how Marcos supported him in all of these suppression and propaganda efforts. Then he tells the stories that he helped suppress in the first place. How after the story of aggressive communists made people more sympathetic to Marcos, they faked a foreign attack by Maoists. Later on, they made the stories even more exciting, an attack on Juan Ponce Enrila himself. Nehara said that he had that story written before the night of the attack even happened. Because of these stories, the people of the Philippines welcomed martial law initially, which allowed the dictatorship to settle in place. Mijares talked about how the re-election of Marcos prior to martial law was the dirtiest in Filipino history. He talked about the exorbitant amount of money being spent and how money was being hoarded by Marcos and his cronies. How Marcos and his cronies would even pocket money from each other from time to time. How this money was being used to buy up business and land, and how even his own office often laundered money for Imelda to use in her beautification project. It's important to note at this point that when Thibaut tells these stories, he's telling it as a person who was involved in them in the first place. He is not absolved of his sins just because he confesses. Nevertheless, it is our place to appreciate what he did, 
the courage that it took for him to be able to stand up and admit his part in all of these atrocities, if that was what it meant to expose Marcos and stop him. The year is 1976. Despite increasing international condemnation that followed his testifying, Marcos stays in power, and Debor remains in exile, in fear of his life, but determined to continue using his position to take down Marcos. Pro-Marcos people call him bitter for losing his media council position, and he proves them wrong by doing something that actively endangers his life. Debor writes a book, The Conjugal Dictatorship of Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos, uh, 400-something pages, I believe, detailing conversations, dirty deals, and scandalous sides of the Marcos family. Nihara says in his foreword, I entertain no illusions that my puny work would dislodge Ferdinand and Imelda from their conceitedly entrenched position. However, history teaches us that dictators always fall either on account of their own corrupt weight or sheer physical exhaustion. I am hopeful that this work would somehow set off or contribute to the ignition, a chain reaction that would compel Marcos to relinquish his vice-like dictatorial grip on his own countrymen. It would be remiss of us here in the podcast to talk about the book since the book speaks for itself quite strongly. All 400-plus pages of it littered with the Marcus's dirty laundry can be found hopefully in your local bookstore or online. There are worse ways to pass your time than to read Maharis's work, especially since it took a lot of effort, including codenaming and subverting authorities like José Rizal did with El Filibusterismo a hundred years earlier for the same reasons. And especially because, at the end of the day, this book cost Maharis literally everything. Debo Mejares may have understood the risks of testifying on an international stage and publishing a whole book, but this did not mean that it was the outcome he desired. I'm sure he was hoping it would turn out alright. As he said, he couldn't hope to dislodge Marcos, but he could at least hope to live. The year is 1977. Debo Mejares is spotted in Guam in January. This is important since it's the last time anyone is ever able to lay eyes on him. From there, his trail grows cold and he is never seen again. Were it that this episode were to reach its peak horror in the unknown of what happened to Debo. Unfortunately, as it is with a lot of martial law stories, it gets worse and we know the details. Boyet Meharis is 16 years old. He has lived a relatively easy life, what with his father being one of the right-hand men of the dictator of the Philippines. He has wanted for nothing. Because of his position, he isn't the head of any activist student groups. He's not a journalist like his father or even an aspiring one like Liliosa Hilao. But like Liliosa, and because of his father's actions, he is abducted one day, without warning, parted off somewhere, we don't know where. From then on, there's tons of urban legends. 
They say that Boyet answered a phone call, and either his father's voice was at the other end pleading to see him, or someone unknown was there, claiming they could let him see his father, at that point missing, for several months. Knowing of the danger, but perhaps wanting to be brave like his dad, wanting to be the dutiful son, or simply desperate to see him again, Boyet agrees to go to a designated meeting place. No matter what happened, for sure Boyet disappeared, as his dad disappeared. They say that Boyet and Tebo were taken to the same place, that Tebo had to watch as they tortured his son in front of him, that he had to watch as they broke his bones and beat him and mangled him, that he had to sit helpless as the boy he helped bring into this world was having the living daylights kicked out of him by men serving a dictator who was once his friend. Whether this is true or not, no matter what happened, we know for sure that Boyet was tortured, mutilated. Some more salacious tales say that either Tebos or Boyet's body was thrown out of a flying helicopter. Though largely considered to be an unverified urban legend, honestly it wouldn't be beyond the military men of Marcos to do such a coarse thing. At this point, they've probably poured muriatic acid down a girl's throat and raped and murdered their way through entire countrysides. What's to stop them from doing that? In the end, we don't know exactly what happened or where, or if anyone was thrown out of anything. But no matter what's true or not, for sure, Boyet's corpse was found in Antipola City, weeks after his disappearance. Marks of torture all over him, bruise marks head to foot, eyes bloated, genitals mutilated. There was no evidence of an easy death on him. Meanwhile, Tibo's body, living or dead, was never found. In a way, Tibo Mejares was able to commit one more act of propaganda on behalf of the Marcuses. With his disappearance and his son's brutal death, it sent out the message to everyone loud and clear. Now everyone knew what would happen if they stepped out of line. Now everyone was more scared than ever to challenge the Marcoses. What if they were disappeared? Worse, what if someone who they loved, but was innocent, was tortured and murdered in their stead? Thibault wanted to use his words to help set the people free. Now that there was only silence from him and his son, the fear in the anti-Marcos society only grew even deeper. Pro-Marcos people love nothing more than to tell everyone else what they deserve. The Filipino people deserve Marcos. The Marcoses deserve to be president. The people who were tortured and died during the time deserved it. And they deserved it because they were heartless, they were communists, they wanted nothing more than power and to harm everyone around them. They should have known their place. But what about the people who didn't power grab? Or mean to harm? What about them? Did they deserve the same knives under the skin? What about those who were only family to those involved? Did they deserve to have their fingers broken one by one, their genitals mangled in some unspeakable way? Is that what Boyet, merely the son of his father, deserved? 
Is that what Tibo, who rejected bribes, who rejected comfort, who said point blank that his conscience was more important than anything Marcos had to offer him, is that what he deserved? As media made Marcos what he was, it is media that would help unmake him, and that will continue to unmake him for years to come. The year is 2020. J.C. Mahares, at the age of 19, lobbied for the reprinting of the conjugal dictatorship. He is older than his uncle Boyet was when Boyet was tortured and killed. JC is candid in his many online interviews that you are allowed to think his grandfather is a bad person. Because after all, Tibo helped Marcos. It was Tibo Miharis' words that made people think martial law was necessary. He even says further that his family has forgiven the Marcoses for what happened to his grandfather and Uncle Boyet. However, JC says it remains important to take sides and to tell the truth about accurate history. I agree with this, because in one way, I am like JC. See, many pro-Marcos people are caping for them in order to get paid or to rile people up of the opposing political faction. On the other hand, the people who defend the history of martial law usually do it because we personally know people who suffered during that time. We have uncles who were murdered, aunts who were raped. We heard tell of farmers who marched then and marched now. We had friends of our parents never make it back from the mountains or had their heads bashed in marching in the streets. JC isn't the only person who is fighting for the memory of family and friends. I am too. My friends who made this podcast are too. And countless others are too. When asked if he received any death threats because of what he was doing, JC said plenty, but he brushes it off as he says none of these threats are credible. When asked if he had anything to say to Sandro Marcos, himself the scion of a family steeped in graft, corruption, and death, himself the inheritor to a completely different side of history, and himself with his own responsibility to accept or reject the truth of the Marcos name, Mihares says, I would probably just level with him and ask him how much he knows about his family. I have some doubts that he really knows the truth of the time, since he likely grew up being told something else. I hold no malice towards him. Primitivo Mejares said in the foreword to the conjugal dictatorship, This book is unfinished. The Filipino people will finish it for me now. We're working on it, Tebo. We may not have had the good life that you had before your change of heart, and we might not have had the same friends in high places, or the same ability to write or speak, but we are working on it. Together and continuously. Thank you for listening, remembering, and getting angry with us today. Yugto is narrated, researched, and written by Sunny and is supported by the Work in Progress team. Sources and any subsequent correction of facts for the episode can be found on the website. 
support us on Spotify, Anchor, and YouTube, or email us for any questions at whipinc.ph at gmail.com. Finally, help us get these stories out there by sharing us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or any social media. Join us next fortnight for another episode. And remember, activism is not terrorism. Truth is not terrorism. See you next time and keep fighting the good fight.